This is Ryland Brown, preaching minister of Little Rock Church, and I want to thank you for listening to this sermon that was recently recorded. If you're in the central Arkansas area, we would love for you to check us out on the web at littlerockchurch.org. We're a church committed to loving God and loving others, and I want you to know right now that God loves you. God bless you as you listen. What a great song, and just a great song, and as I said earlier, it's good to be with you. We are going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30 is going to be our text this morning as we begin this new series called Gospel Culture. And I want to say how proud I am of our uh, small group leaders. And, uh, you know, there seems to be some excitement about it. And we've got quite a number of our house churches involved in it. And that that is exciting. And as I said uh, during the call to worship, it really is about us creating a community or having a community, thinking about us as a community that wants to pledge allegiance to Jesus, to take his call when he says, follow me, we want to take that seriously. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the gospel that Jesus preached, the the gospel that Peter preached, that Paul preached, and sometimes those things are are seen at odds. And a a question you might need to wrestle with is, did Jesus preach the gospel? Uh, And I'm going to give the answer to you right now and say, yes, he did, uh, because he is the gospel. But there are some who who don't believe that he preached the gospel, that it wasn't until Pentecost in Acts 2 uh, that the gospel was preached. But the gospel is not just about forgiveness of sins, as we're going to discover over the next six weeks. It's about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a benefit to him being Lord, we have the forgiveness of sins. And so it is that he is Lord over all. He is is Lord. And uh, we're going to look at what Jesus says this morning about that in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 uh, through 30. And out of respect for God and his holy word, would you please stand with me? In fact, we're going to find Jesus standing this morning to read scripture, so we're in good company. Verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done to Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, I truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. 
but passing through their midst, he went his way. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray for illumination right now on your word, that Christ would be made real, that he would speak by the Spirit through the word to the hearts of your people. Lord, we have entered into a heavenly assembly, and we have the mystery of the gospel. Lord, I pray as we as a, a begin to think about 2021 and uh, that life is different than it used to be, that we would uh, capture and be enthralled with the beauty of Jesus. Lord, we want something deeper than just little life lessons to help us through the day. We want to see the majesty and glory of the Lord. Lord, help us to keep that in mind so that we would guard ourselves from being tempted to trade the true reality of life in Christ over something sophomoric and dumb and simple. Lord, we want to worship something bigger than ourselves. Our hearts were made for it. I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. May be seated. Well, it's been a crazy week to start 2021, hasn't it? My goodness, what in the world is going on, y'all? It's been a crazy week. Uh, one of the things that I don't know about you, but one of the things that struck out to me this week was, uh, with all the, the chaos in D.C., was those signs that said Jesus saves. Did you see those? My word. Nothing that happened this week in the name of Jesus was from Jesus' loved ones. Nothing done in the name of Jesus this week. The Lord abhors violence all the time. And so nothing that was done this week in the name of Jesus was from Jesus. Jesus didn't come to storm the capital. He actually came to storm death. He came to storm sin and he came to storm our hearts. He didn't come to storm buildings that are falling away. What happened this week was a symptom of a gospel problem. And it remi actually reminded me of the story we just read this week because the people in Jesus' story were just like the ones in D.C. this week and just like the one, those of us in this room this week. They were asking the question, when will the Messiah come and restore Israel? When will the Messiah come and fix things? When will the Messiah come and make things right? And when will the, for them, it was when will Messiah come and remove Rome and make Israel the center of the world again because after all, we're God's people. It was Jewish nationalism. And yet, what we find in Scripture is that Jesus does something surprising. He comes as the Messiah to fulfill Israel's history, but his appearing is quite surprising. His reign is is quite surprising, and what he says about the kingdom is all a surprise to these people. In fact, it's such a surprise that they get up on the Sabbath and decide to take him out and try to kill him without a trial on the Sabbath. If Jesus had a, knew how to make a group of Jews in the tabernacle on an angry Sabbath, he sure was successful at it, wasn't he? I mean, he really had this down as an art form. The people in Jesus' day were full of expectations. Will the Messiah come so they can get back to normal? No more Rome. No more culture mixing. 
No more. We want to go back to Jesus. The Messiah needs to come so we can go back to normal. And I think we're a lot like these people, full of expectation, a desire to return back to normal. But Jesus never goes back to normal, loved ones. He doesn't go back. He moves forward. Notice that there's the surprise of the gospel. Meaning, what happened in our story shows either a love or a hate for Jesus. You can't remain neutral with Jesus. So Jesus is in his hometown. He's preaching at the synagogue, and he preaches from Isaiah 61. And most people who study this stuff recognize when Jesus preached, whether it was the Sermon on the Mount or here in Luke 4, he always preached longer than what's recorded. The Sermon on the Mount probably lasted up to a day, maybe even a couple days, and this would have been uh, more of a sermon than just a little verse. He, he said some things that would have gotten people mad. It was a synoptic. It was a, a covering of what Jesus did within his text, and he starts his sermon, like all good preachers, with the text, and he begins with Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, when he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And he closed that scroll, gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were on him. You can feel the tension in Luke chapter 4. They're wondering, because they've heard Jesus has done miracles. That's why he refers later on, he says, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself, because he's saying, you all have heard about me doing miracles, and that's what you're really waiting for. They're waiting. He's done miracles. And now he's preached Isaiah 61. Isaiah talked more about the servant of God, the, the Messiah of God, than any other prophet. And they're saying, oh, oh is, is this, the, he, he's, he, this might be the guy. He might be the one. This is the Messiah. He's, he's giving us signs. Let's see if he's going to fulfill it with miracles. It's a passage full of hope. A passage full of working. That's why in verse 22 it says, and all were speaking well of him. I mean, the scene is much more elongated than what we have in the text, but Jesus read the text, he preached a sermon, he expounded sermon, and everybody was wondering, is, oh, is this the one? They were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling on his lips, and they were even surprised. Is this Joseph's son? That guy? We know Jesus. He's Isaiah 61, him? Well, he grew up with us, him. And then things take a nasty turn in the story. He pokes the bear. He gets their goat. No pun intended, goats, but he gets their goat. Luke 4, 24 through 20, 23 through 24, he said to them, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me. He's saying, he, he could read their thoughts and minds. He's saying, no doubt what you're going to think about. Uh, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Miracles were done in Capernaum. They're saying, Jesus, you're preaching Isaiah 61, you're giving strong Messiah vibes. Are you going to do it here in Nazareth? And then he said, you don't understand. 
No prophet is welcome in his hometown. And then he tells two stories from the Bible, both from prophets who had a big role to play in Judaism in this this point in history where, where they really focused on Elijah and Elisha. And in those stories, miracles happened, but they didn't happen to the Israelites, to the people of God. They happened to uh, those outside of God's people, to um, not Jewish people. What's the other people? Gentiles, thank you. Gentiles. It happened to non-Jewish people, Gentiles, and things went bad at that point. And why this is so offensive is because he's saying, listen, Isaiah 61, you're right, I'm it. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one who is going to fulfill God's history in Israel in the Old Testament. You're looking for, the pro- your problem is you're looking for the miracle and not the miracle worker. You're looking for the blessing and not the king. You're looking for the freedom without God's control. And the people get violently angry. And think about how violent they get. They get so violent that on the Sabbath, when they would not even work, do any work, they just, and they would never, they had the death penalty, but they would never allow the death penalty without a uh, court of law, without a trial for a Jewish person. But guess what they do? They start, they literally get out of their minds. They get out of their minds so much that they, uh, they become a lynch mob and they take Jesus and they try to kill him on the Sabbath. They break all their own laws because what Jesus said is so offensive. They get violently angry. And this is the point. The surprise of the gospel causes a strong reaction to Jesus, meaning you can't and you shouldn't remain neutral to Jesus, loved ones. And the truth is, even today, you can't remain neutral to Jesus. When you look at all the responses of those encountered him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who witnessed the gospel, you find that either people hated him, wanted to kill him, were cautious about him, but they were never neutral with him. They never said, well, I don't know if I... They were always had an opinion about him. And I encourage us as we think about a gospel community, a gospel vision, a gospel culture, to not be neutral about Jesus. Let's not be generic Christians is what I'm saying. Let's be in the pro-Jesus camp, and all God's people said. Let's not be generic about him. See, if we're going to form a culture of a church that is centered on the life of Jesus, we can't be neutral about him as a church. We can't shy away from him or his teaching or his life. And, so, and some of you might be saying, well, we don't really do that. And I would say, sometimes we don't, sometimes we do, because there's things that he's said that are hard to do, and we kind of want to say, well... Maybe, sometimes, how can I figure a way to get out of that? And we don't really take him seriously. We can't be comfortable saying, well, people just view this or that issue differently. No, we need to resound with the love for Jesus so that whether in your small group, in our church, in our life, people know that we're Jesus' people. And if we're going to be that kind of church, loved ones, we can't ever shy away from Jesus. We've got to lift him high. We can't be generic Christians and say we just love God. We actually need to be Christian and say we confess our allegiance to Jesus the King. We can't be generic if we're going to have a gospel culture. I think sometimes we might be nervous to talk about Jesus because we're hopeful that when we do that, people will like us, and if they like us, then they'll like Jesus. If we can just win them over. Well, how'd that go for Jesus in Luke 4? Did it go well for Jesus in Luke 4? No, it didn't go well for Jesus in Luke 4. And sometimes it will go well and sometimes it won't, loved ones. But that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to lift high the name of Jesus every opportunity we can. That's our responsibility. 
Now, it doesn't mean we need to be uh, anything other than winsome, and we need to be salt and light and all those, what those things mean, but we, we need to not worry so much as our strategy as we do the gospel. It, it would be kind of like a, a bunch of farmers standing around trying to feed the cattle, and they spend all their time on the strategy of feeding the cattle, and they never spend any of their time actually feeding the cattle. It'd be a waste of everybody's energy. What they would do is they would stand out there and, hey, I can build the biggest, best contraption to feed the cattle. And another one says, I can, I can build a better thing that will make the feed even more attractive to the cattle. And at some point, someone just needs to come out and say, you know, we just need to feed the cattle. We just need to get it out there. We spend so much time, remember the miracle, or the, the gospel, the, the story of the sower, the parable of the sower? We spend so much time thinking about all the different hearts, but the truth is there's one type of seed. There's not multiple types of seed. There's one type of seed. There's one gospel. It's a surprise. You cannot be neutral to Jesus. The second thing that surprised this group and should surprise us is that Jesus includes all ethnicities in his gospel culture and his kingdom. He includes all ethnicities. That's part of what got them upset was Jesus telling them about Elisha and Elijah and saying that it wasn't the Jewish people who benefited, but actually non-Jewish people who benefited. They believed they were the family of God, and they were, but they struggled with racism. They were insecure. The apostles were insecure when you read the book of Acts about this issue. Peter was insecure with race issues in the book of Acts. And yet God's grace shows us that there's nothing about us that earns God favor, therefore why should we hold it out on anyone else? Racism is a gospel issue, loved ones. And the only cure is a gospel answer. And I hate that we have to say things like this in 2021, but let's just stand on hard truths. And uh, racial superiority in any form is wrong, and all God's people said. It's wrong at any level. White supremacy or any other kind of supremacy is wrong. The only one who's supreme is Jesus Christ. Okay? The only one who is supreme is Jesus Christ. And it was a shock for these people in this day. Racism is a gospel issue, and the only cure is a gospel answer. It was a surprise for the people in Jesus' day because the Jewish people thought it was just them. Now, before you begin to think about us as the main one in the stories and begin to turn this into primarily an American racist issue, which is a secondary issue to the text, that's true, that's there, but I don't believe that's the main point uh, about the text, even though it's true. We, we do have to accept, and we, we gladly accept, the multi-ethnic dimension of the gospel, but our first response to this passage should not be, what do we need to do? It's to praise God for what he's done for us because you and I are not Jewish. We're Gentiles who have been adopted into the family. We're actually the outsiders for the people in the book, loved ones. So our first response to this passage is not what do we need to do, even though that's true. That's a secondary issue. Our primary issue when we read this text is I'm not Jewish and praise the Lord that he adopted me into the family. That's the first response is praise to God. We are not Jewish. There's not a Jewish person in this room. We've been what Paul says, adopted into the family. And yet sometimes I think we're so centric to ourselves as being the hero of the story that we 
put ourselves in those spots. Liana Brendan with Business Insider, she writes, in Japan, 98% of adoptions are actually adult men aged between 20 to 30 years old, not children. Did you know this? That's according to government data cited by economist Stephen Levitt and journalist Stephen L. Dubner in their book Freakonomics, as well as a number of other reputable media outlets also citing government data. And it all started hundreds of years ago when Japan's civil code dictated how a family's wealth would be passed on after the death of a family elder. In households which only have daughters, a family would look to adopt a son so they could fulfill the role of carrying on the family business as well as receiving and being custodian to the family's cash and assets. We're not looking for a son. We're we're happy with our our daughters. If we had a son, they wouldn't want one. We have to pass on, so it's okay. We are so thankful for our daughters. Nowadays, legal adoptions of this kind is paired up with an arranged marriage. In Japan, there are even matchmaking companies that recruit voluntary adoptees for Japanese corporations. Some of Japan's most famous companies have remained a family-run business because of this law, such as carmaker Toyota, which was founded by uh, Kirchio, I'm sorry, I apologize to him, Toyota in 1937. Suzuki is also famously run by adopted sons. In fact, the current chairman and CEO is the fourth consecutively adopted son to run the company. And in Japanese culture, adoption is a practical solution to perpetuate the bloodline in the absence of an heir. God has a similar dilemma. Since flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, God has also turned to adoption. No one is born a citizen of heaven. Every son and daughter of God is so by adoption. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure or well. Adoption is always something of a surprise, isn't it, loved ones? You didn't have anyone before. But now you have us. Hey, you get to be part of the family. And not only do you get to be part of the family, but your father is the one who made everything. That's pretty good news, isn't it? In 2013, the world in tears watched the viral video of Davian Only, an orphan teenager who stood at the front of a church and pleaded for someone, anyone, to adopt him. He was dressed in his best suit. He stood at the podium saying that he wasn't picky. They could be black or white, old or young, mom or dad. He just wasn't picky. He said, I want someone to love me until I die. And he said he was growing impatient, but he wouldn't lose hope. I know God hasn't given up on me, so I'm not going to give up either. In response to his plea, his foster agency received thousands of inquiries from people interested in giving this young man a home. And he even went to live with a prospective adoptive family only to be returned to foster care over conflict with his adoptive siblings. And over the next year, after he pleaded for adoption, he lived in a succession of four more temporary placements. Throughout his journey to find a forever home, Davian leaned heavily on his caseworker, Connie Going repeatedly asking her if she would be his mother. Connie, who had two biological daughters as well as a son whom she had already adopted out of foster care, was continually resistant to his pleas, holding out hope that there was a great home waiting somewhere out there for him. But all that changed with Davian's last plea. In adoption, there's a claiming moment, she said, when you know someone is your child. When he called me to ask in that moment, I just knew when he called me, 
my heart felt this ache and I just knew that he was my son. And Mrs. Going followed the prompting of her heart and entered her application for his adoption and it became final April the 22nd, 2015. She was his caseworker for more than 10 years and had already the mom of another adopted foster child and Going is all too familiar with the challenges which lie ahead. Have you ever searched for unconditional love? Have you ever searched for someone to love you wholly? Maybe you have felt like God has been your caseworker. And if he's not, I plead with you this morning to make him your father. He loves you. And he wants to adopt you into the family and give you his name. God decided in advance, Ephesians 1.5, to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And it gives him great pleasure to do it. And if you're in the family through adoption, loved ones, you need to know God loves you. He knows your struggle. He knows your pain. He knows your temper. He knows all the things about you, but there's a claiming moment for him, you. My point is this. You might be discouraged by the events this week. I was discouraged by the events this week. But if you are a child of God, Little Rock Church, lift your head up and say, praise the Lord. That's weak. So I'll do it again. And it's okay because it was a rhetorical question. But let me say it again. You might have been discouraged by the events of this week. I was discouraged by the events of this week. But if you are a child of God, lift up your head and say, praise the Lord. You are adopted into the family. And no one can take that away from you. Congress can't take that away from you. Whoever is in the White House can't take that away from you. Censorship can't take that away from you. There is nothing in all of creation that can take away God's will for your life to be adopted into the family. So when you walk out of this room, you remember who you are. You are a child of God. And our hope does not lie in the failings of this world. Our hope lies in the king who is eternal. So you little rock church, you act like it. Lift up your head when the doubts and discouragement come and you say, no, I'm a child of God. That, this can't take it away from me. You are adopted. That should be our response to Luke 4. Not firstly, what do we need to do because we're not Jewish. But praise the Lord He adopted us pitiful Gentiles into the family. What a surprise. Because I know me and I don't deserve to be adopted into the family. But by the grace of God, he has adopted us in. Now secondary to that, it is a surprise that it's multi-ethnic, it's Jewish and Gentile and If God has adopted us into that family, that call is available to everyone we meet. And as I said earlier, any racial supremacy, white supremacy, is ungodly, unbefitting, and absolutely from the pit of hell. And if your response right now is to say, well, but you don't understand the other side, no. 
It's wrong all the time. And we need to be accepting, we need to be engaging and encouraging. The third and final surprise that we find here in the gospel culture. So firstly, there's a surprise that you can't remain neutral. Secondly, there's a surprise that it's multi-ethnic and that should cause us as Gentiles to praise God and extend that to everyone else. And thirdly and quickly, we, should be, we are surprised that Jesus in this passage when he preaches Isaiah 61, he includes messed up and messy people. Do You see what Jesus preached from? What kind of people did he come for? The poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. Comedian Warren Hutchison once recalled, my father was a separatist black Muslim. And when Santa at the mall asked me what I wanted, my father shouted him, tell him you want your freedom. Got any of that in your bag, fat man? And the comedian said, and I thought I just wanted some rock'em sock'em robots. As Americans, there's typically nothing more than we value than our freedoms, but just because you happen to live in the land of the free and the home of the rock'em, sock'em robots doesn't mean you have experienced the freedom proclaimed in the story of Christ. That message tells us that Jesus was born into this world to liberate us from the greatest oppressor ever, the bondage forced on us by the power of sin. If it's freedom you want, you can have it, but you're not going to find it in Santa's bag. The freedom we're all looking for was discreetly laid in a manger and hung on a cross. Let me ask, do you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here? That he came for the poor, the enslaved, those blind and the oppressed? Those who have problems in this life, those who have a rough road, those who know they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I don't know how many Sunday school classes I've sat in where someone says we have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps as though somehow that is an American Christian virtue, when Jesus says, no, I came for people who don't have any arms to pull themselves up. I came for people who don't have bank accounts. I came for the blind and the impressed. I, I came for those who have no hope. I came for those who have a complicated situation. I came for those who don't know their bodies and don't know what to do. I, I came for everyone. I came, if you've not felt the weight of your incapacity in life, you won't understand Jesus' love. Because he didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for those who could pull themselves up by the bootstraps. He came for the poor, the blind, the destitute, the corrupted, the angry, the murderous, the lustful. He came for the drug addicts. He came for the prideful. He prayed for, he came for the gossipers, and he came for you, and he came for me, and if you don't feel the weight of Isaiah 61 of that's who I am, you'll never know the love of God. As long as you assume Isaiah 61, well, that's for someone else, you won't understand the love of God. Because if you don't understand Isaiah 61 and how bad we are, we're never going to understand how good Jesus is and all God's people said. That's weak, but think about it because you know I'm right. Think about it this week. If you don't understand how sinful you really are, you're never going to understand how good God really is. We don't have the capacity. If we're just okay, then all we need is a just okay Savior. 
But if we're Isaiah 61, then we need that kind of Messiah. Don't neuter Jesus by saying, by thinking that we're better than we really are. If this week has taught us anything, it's that we're not really good people. It's a gospel problem. We need a gospel solution. Do you feel poor? Do you feel captive? Do you feel blind? Maybe physically, but also spiritually blind? Do you feel oppressed? If so, Jesus came for you. He came for all of you. He came to set you free from the burden of your captivity, your slave to debt and sin. He came to give you new bodies at the resurrection. He came to make all things new. I don't know about you, but that feels like a pretty good deal for those of us who feel pretty bad knowing how sinful we are. Deborah and I got a new dishwasher this week. As the one who does the dishes in the house, it was a great thing to get. I do the dishes in our house. It's a side mark, but men, if you're not doing more cleaning than your wives, you're not leading your home well. And all the ladies said. We'll have a second sermon after this, but seriously. I hear men all the time. I'm the leader of my home. I'm the leader of the home. Do you work harder than your wife? No, you're not leading your home. Lead your home. Do the dishes and vacuum and be the leader. That's beside the point. That's a, I'm getting a lot of amens. We could stay there, but we'll come back another day. But as the one who does the dishes in our home, we got a new dishwasher this week, and that was a good thing. Our last dishwasher broke. I bought the parts for it. I tried to fix it. But you know what's even better news? We're headed on a trajectory for a life. I mean, it's a silly illustration, but we're headed for a life, loved ones, where nothing ever breaks. I mean, a, a new dishwasher is pretty good. It's going to break one day. But life in Christ means we're headed on a trajectory where nothing ever breaks. Jesus said a life on him would be like a solid rock. And loved ones, in Isaiah 61, as I close up, I don't take Jesus just metaphorically here. I take him actually literally. Do you want to be rich? Turn to Christ. Not in this life, but ultimately we have mansions in heaven. It may not be immediate, but there's treasure in heaven stored up for us. Those of you on medication right now, you stay with Christ, you're going to throw that pill bottle in the trash one day and never have to deal with an ailing body again. And all God's people said. You think COVID can stand against the King Jesus? Absolutely not. Cancer, it's done with. Blindness, it's done with. Cleft palates, they're gone. Diabetes, Jesus is going to diabetes that. It's gone. High blood pressure, it's gone. We get new bodies that never fail and we take on the imperishable. That is good news. I don't take Jesus just metaphorically here. I take him literally. For those of you with physical problems, you stay with Jesus because all of it will be made right. You won't ever wake up sore anymore. Jesus is our light. Are you on a prayer list? God bless all of the prayer list. But we're headed to a project trajectory, loved ones, because of the reign of Jesus where we won't need prayer list anymore. At least not those kind. We'll have praise lists, but not things we're asking for. We have some people in our congregation, he's not here, they're blind. You have your spiritual sight. One day you will receive your physical sight back at the resurrection. Loved ones, a gospel culture is where we are at at Little Rock Church. We love and we accept messy people and people with baggage because that's the kind of people Jesus is after. The 
gospel is made for people who need good news. And I have a feeling we're the kind of people that need good news. And quickly before Christy Kimberlin comes and has our communion thought, Jesus at the end here in verse 19, he says, I've come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Have you ever heard of something called the year of Jubilee? That's what Jesus is referring to here, uh, the year of Jubilee. Everything is restored. Now, the thing with the year of Jubilee is that it was supposed to happen every 49 to 50 years in the Old Testament. God pronounced it, that the year of Jubilee will come, and that means all debts are erased, canceled, slaves are set free, everything goes back to the way it's supposed to be so that the wealth of the family could stay. It was stability for the people of God in the Old Testament. Do you know how many times uh, the Israelites uh, celebrated the year of Jubilee? Zero. We sing it in one of our songs, Behold He Comes, Waiting for the Year of Jubilee. What's the name of that song? Days of Elijah. There it is. It's like trivia in this morning, isn't it? It's like trivia. Sarah wins 10 points. Uh, they, they <laughs> she's winning. <laughs> so, uh, but the year, the year of Jubilee in the Bible and extra biblical, do you know how many times it happened? Zero times. Never happened in Israel's history, the year of Jubilee. It's hard if you've got wealth to give it up, isn't it? I mean, it's easy for the people who need the debt canceled, but for the people who have wealth, it's hard. It's hard to give that up. And what does Jesus say? I've come to proclaim the year of Jubilee. I've come to proclaim the year of pardon. The things that the Israelites failed to do, guess who's doing it? Jesus Christ. And what this means is there's not a debt in your life spiritually and one day physically that will not be made right so little rock church as we have a gospel culture you hold on to jesus christ every step of the way let's pray heavenly father i thank you for little rock church and uh, I, I thank you for the body here i thank you for their desire and our desire as a church to love jesus and to follow him to take him seriously lord Continue to put that passion in our hearts. Continue to do that. Put that passion in our hearts. That we would love Jesus, that we would take him seriously. Lord, for those in this room, those of us who need a little bit of hope this week, we're just discouraged. And whatever it might be, it might be a job thing, it might be national news, international news. Lord, help us to not be cynical, but help us to take Jesus seriously, that he has come to preach the good news to the oppressed, the poor, the blind, those who are captive, and he has made all things right. Maybe not immediately right now, but ultimately all things will be made right. Give us patience until he comes. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.